The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the show. We have a great episode today. Evie Lee is back, the newly minted vice president of the Literature Supporters Club. She's here to talk about one of the most famous short stories of the 20th century, The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. And this story is probably one of the most spoilable stories of all time. So please go read it now if you want to read it in a hard copy. Or you can just hang on because we are going to read it for you right here on the History of Literature podcast. Some bonus content for you. It's an amazing story with a fantastic ending. And it's got some ambiguities that Evie and I will dive into afterwards. What does it mean? Why did it provoke the reaction it did? And how does it hold up 70-some years later? Is it still as powerful today? And if so, why? And if not, why not? So that's what... Oh, excuse me. Someone seems to be at the door here. Hello? Is that someone? Right. Hello. This is Bartleby. Yes. Hello, Bartleby. The Scrivener. Ah, now I know who you are. You might Famous know me Bartleby. from the story by Herman Melville called... Bartleby. Mm-hmm. The Scrivener. Yes. I became famous for my catchphrase, I would prefer not to. (laughs) So when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that I would prefer not to. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Mm. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. (sighs) Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? Mm, Not not donating. Well, guess what, folks? I got a note from Bartleby complaining. You think of Bartleby as not wanting to do things well. That's just the character he played for the Melville story. In real life, he's hungry and ambitious. Don't confuse the guy in the story with the character you just heard for yourself, the real Bartleby, who is eager for work. Scrivening being not what it used to be. We got him for a song, actually. I mean that. I mean that literally. We didn't pay him anything. I just sang him a song, and he was so bored and optimistic he took on the work. So anyway, Bartleby heard last week's episode with Allison Hagee, author of the new novel Scribe, and he was upset that we didn't invite him on to do the show. That would have had some nice synergy, he said, scrivening and scribing. And I said, "What? You just want to come on and do your prefer not to shtick?" And he said, no, no, I could have talked to her about the act of writing. How much I admired the main character who had the power of words in that novel, while I have the power of words, but they are not my own words. They are the words of others. I could have drawn that out, asked a few questions, 
And I felt bad then, knowing how hungry poor Bartleby is and how eager he is for any work at all. So I said, Bartleby, my apologies. I should have had you on last week, and you could have asked those questions. And you know what? Alison Hagee is incredibly nice and generous, and we could probably call her right now. And you could ask your questions, and I could record them and run them next week as a supplemental episode, a part two, so to speak. And Bartleby looked up at me with his sad, mournful eyes, rimming with gratitude, and said, I prefer not to. Hmm, so we're cutting him out. The ungrateful wretch, I wish I could get him to return that song I sang him, but I think that ship has sailed. But he does make a good point about supporting the show. We're doing our best to keep the wheels rolling here at the History of Literature podcast. The gears churning, the train chugging down the tracks. You can help by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com literature and signing up for a small monthly contribution with your credit card or PayPal account. Or you can check out historyofliterature.com shop and give a one-time donation in whatever $5 increment you like. Buy me a coffee, buy me a beer, buy me a... Oh, what did Shirley Jackson and her peers drink back then in the 1940s? Rye, slow gin, buy me an old-fashioned. We very much appreciate it. This week, we're thanking our new patron, Amy, who signed up and followed up with a beautiful email. My thanks to Amy and all of our generous supporters of the show. So... Shirley Jackson was born in 1916 in San Francisco, California. She went to Syracuse University in upstate New York for college, then resettled in Vermont with her husband, a college sweetheart, whom she met at the university's literary magazine. Jackson was a star, eventually publishing six novels, two memoirs, and over 200 short stories. Today, She's best known for the eerie, unsettling effects she produced in the supernatural horror novel, the Haunting of Hill House, which came out in 1959. Some say it's the best ghost story ever written. But she is best known for her masterpiece of a short story, The Lottery, which took the world by storm in 1948 when it was published in The New Yorker and immediately set off a cavalcade of angry reader feedback. Hate mail poured in with canceled subscriptions. It's a little hard to believe for those of us who view the story as part of the literary canon these days, almost a fixture on syllabi everywhere in America or included in anthology after anthology on list after list of great short stories. But it was also banned in several places, which I'll talk about with Evie. Has always had this sort of tenuous relationship from readers and people in power alike. Jackson was reclusive. She was a heavy smoker and struggled with her health and eventually died at the unfairly early age of 48 in 1965. She lived long enough to see her influence on popular culture and authors like Rod Serling, the creator of The Twilight Zone, which ran from 1959 to 1964 and practically adopted the lottery as a template for many of its episodes using it as a guide for how to present a seemingly normal situation, especially in a small town in America, then give it a twist and convey deep themes in the process. After her death, she went on to influence authors like Neil Gaiman and Stephen King, and she continues to have an impact around the world. So let's take a break. 
Then we'll listen to the lottery. Then we will have Evie Lee join us to discuss Shirley Jackson and her story, The Lottery, then and now. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The Lottery by Shirley Jackson The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank, around ten o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about three hundred people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at ten o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer, and the feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher, of books and reprimands. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced this name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in the dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors, and taxes. They stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women, wearing faded house dresses and sweaters, came shortly after their menfolk. They greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women, standing by their husbands, began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. 
Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing, back to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his oldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program, by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him, because he had no children, and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square, carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, Little late today, folks. The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool, and when Mr. Summers said, Some of you fellows want to give me a hand? There was a hesitation before two men, Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box, now resting on the stool, had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some pieces of the box that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything's being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now, it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color, and in some places faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his oldest son, Baxter, held the black box securely on the stool until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population was more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers's coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square next morning. The rest of the year the box was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves's barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists to make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing-in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered, there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, timeless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of the lottery used to stand just so when he said or sang it, Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. 
There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time, until now it was felt necessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this, in his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box, he seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins. Just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers, Mrs. Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders, and slid into place in the back of the crowd. "'Clean forgot what day it was,' she said to Mrs. Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. "'Thought my old man was out back stacking wood,' Mrs. Hutchinson went on, "'and then I looked out the window and the kids was gone, and then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running.' She dried her hands on her apron, and Mrs. Delacroix said, "'You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there.' Mrs. Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the crowd and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Mrs. Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said, in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And, Bill, she made it after all. Mrs. Hutchinson reached her husband, and Mr. Summers, who had been waiting, said cheerfully, Thought we were going to have to get on without you, Tessie. Mrs. Hutchinson said, grinning, Wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now, would you, Joe? And soft laughter ran through the crowd as the people stirred back into position after Mrs. Hutchinson's arrival. Well, now, Mr. Summers said soberly, Guess we better get started, get this over with, so as we can go back to work. Anybody ain't here? Dunbar, several people shouted, Dunbar, Dunbar. Mr. Summers consulted his list. Clyde Dunbar, he said. That's right. He's broke his leg, hasn't he? Who's drawing for him? Me, I guess, a woman said, and Mr. Summers turned to look at her. Wife draws for her husband. Mr. Summers said, Don't you have a grown boy to do it for you, Janie? Although Mr. Summers and everyone else in the village knew the answer perfectly well, it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally. Mr. Summers waited with an expression of polite interest while Mrs. Dunbar answered. Horace is not but sixteen yet, Mrs. Dunbar said regretfully. Guess I gotta fill in for the old man this year. Right, Mr. Summers said. He made a note on the list he was holding. Then he asked, Watson boy drawing this year? A tall boy in the crowd raised his hand. Here, he said, I'm drawing for my mother and me. He blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like, Good fellow, Jack, and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it. Well, Mr. Summer said, guess that's everyone. Old man Warner make it? Here, a voice said, and Mr. Summers nodded. A sudden hush fell on the crowd and as Mr. Summers cleared his throat and looked at the list. All ready? He called. Now, I'll read the names. Heads of families first and the men come up and take a paper out of the box. Keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn. Everything clear? The people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions. Most of them were quiet, wetting their lips, not looking around. Then Mr. Summers raised one hand high and said, Adams. A man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward. Hi, Steve, Mr. Summers said, and Mr. Adams said, Hi, Joe. 
They grinned at one another humorlessly and nervously. Then Mr. Adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper. He held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd, where he stood a little apart from his family, not looking down at his hand. Alan, Mr. Summer said. Anderson. Bentham. Seems like there's no time at all between lotteries anymore, Mrs. Delacroix said to Mrs. Graves in the back row. Seems like we got through with the last one only last week. Time sure goes fast, Mrs. Graves said. Clark, Delacroix. There goes my old man, Mrs. Delacroix said. She held her breath while her husband went forward. Dunbar, Mr. Summers said, and Mrs. Dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said, Go on, Janie. And another said, There she goes. We're next, Mrs. Graves said. She watched while Mr. Graves came around from the side of the box, greeted Mr. Summers gravely, and selected a slip of paper from the box. By now, all through the crowd, there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hand, turning them over and over nervously. Mrs. Dunbar and her two sons stood together, Mrs. Dunbar holding the slip of paper. Harbert... Hutchinson. Get up there, Bill, Mrs. Hutchinson said, and the people near her laughed. Jones. They do say, Mr. Adams said to old man Warner, who stood next to him, that over in the North Village they're talking of giving up the lottery. Old man Warner snorted. Pack of crazy fools, he said, listening to the young folks. Nothing's good enough for them. Next thing you know, they'll be wanting to go back to living in caves. Nobody work anymore, live that way for a while. Used to be a saying about lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. First thing you know, we'd all be eating stewed chickweed and acorns. There's always been a lottery, he added petulantly. Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Mrs. Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdyke, Percy, I wish they'd hurry, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run tell dad, Mrs. Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called, Warner. Seventy-seventh year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson. The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summers, holding his slip of paper in the air, said, all right, fellows. For a minute no one moved, and then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Mrs. Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take any paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Mrs. Delacroix called, and Mrs. Graves said, All of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, 
Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summer said, that was done pretty fast, and now we've got to be hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson family. You got any other households in the Hutchinsons? There's Don and Eva, Mrs. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair. And I've got no other family except the kids. Then, as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you, Mr. Summers said in explanation. And as far as drawing for households is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right, then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box, then, Mr. Summers directed. Take Bill's and put it in. I think we ought to start over. Mrs. Hutchinson said as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't give them enough time to choose. Everybody saw that. Mr. Graves had selected the five slips and put them in the box, and he dropped all the papers but those onto the ground, where the breeze caught them and lifted them off. Listen, everybody, Mrs. Hutchinson was saying to the people around her. Ready, Bill? Mr. Summers asked, and Bill Hutchinson, with one quick glance around at his wife and children, nodded. Remember, Mr. Summer said, take the slips and keep them folded until each person has taken one. Harry, you help little Dave. Mr. Graves took the hand of the little boy, who came willingly with him up to the box. Take a paper out of the box, Davy, Mr. Summer said. Davy put his hand into the box and laughed. Take just one paper, Mr. Summer said. Harry, you hold it for him. Mr. Graves took the child's hand and removed the folded paper from the tight fist and held it while little Dave stood next to him and looked up at him wonderingly. Nancy next, Mr. Summers said. Nancy was twelve, and her school friends breathed heavily as she went forward, switching her skirt, and took a slip daintily from the box. Bill Jr., Mr. Summers said, and Billy, his face red and his feet overlarge, near knocked the box over as he got a paper out. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. She hesitated for a minute, looking around defiantly, and then set her lips and went up to the box. She snatched a paper out and held it behind her. Bill, Mr. Summers said, and Bill Hutchinson reached into the box and felt around, bringing his hand out at last with the slip of paper in it. The crowd was quiet. A girl whispered, I hope it's not Nancy, and the sound of the whisper reached the edges of the crowd. It's not the way it used to be, old man Warner said clearly. People ain't the way they used to be. All right, Mr. Summer said. Open the papers. Harry, you open little Dave's. Mr. Graves opened the slip of paper, and there was a general sigh through the crowd as he held it up, and everyone could see that it was blank. Nancy and Bill Jr. opened theirs at the same time, and both beamed and laughed, turning around to the crowd and holding their slips of paper above their heads. Tessie, Mr. Summers said. There was a pause, and then Mr. Summers looked at Bill Hutchinson, and Bill unfolded his paper and showed it. It was blank. It's Tessie, 
Mr. Summers said, and his voice was hushed. Show us her paper, Bill. Bill Hutchinson went over to his wife and forced the slip of paper out of her hand. It had a black spot on it. The black spot Mr. Summers had made the night before with the heavy pencil in the coal company office. Bill Hutchinson held it up, and there was a stir in the crowd. All right, folks, Mr. Summers said. Let's finish quickly. Although the villagers had forgotten the ritual and lost the original black box, they still remembered to use stones. The pile of stones the boys had made earlier was ready. There were stones on the ground with the blowing scraps of paper that had come out of the box. Delacroix selected a stone so large she had to pick it up with both hands and turned to Mrs. Dunbar. Come on, she said. Hurry up. Mrs. Dunbar had small stones in both hands, and she said, gasping for breath, I can't run at all. You'll have to go ahead, and I'll catch up with you. The children had stones already, and someone gave little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles. Tessie Hutchinson was in the center of a cleared space by now, and she held her hands out desperately as the villagers moved in on her. It isn't fair, she said. A stone hit her on the side of the head. Old man Warner was saying, Come on, come on, everyone. Steve Adams was in the front of the crowd of villagers, with Mrs. Graves beside him. It isn't fair, it isn't right, Mrs. Hutchinson screamed, and then they were upon her. Okay, joining me now is Evie Lee, the newly minted vice president of the Literature Supporters Club. Evie Lee, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hello, Jack. Thanks for having me back. Okay, so Evie, we just listened to The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. It's a very famous story, one of the most famous American short stories of the 20th century, I would say. And it's famous for the turn that it takes. When you first read this story, were you shocked? To be honest, Jack, I read the story a very long time ago, mm. um, so I can't recall specifically, but I will say I had to have been shocked <laughs> and probably a little confused as well. Yeah. So the reactions, I mean, I could see a lot of different reactions, uh, potential reactions of being angry, confused, <laughs> intrigued, uh, horrified. <laughs> Can you unpack the way that you felt either the first time you read it or the most recent time? So I, I have to say that I, I find the idea of being angry a little confusing mm. in the sense that I don't know why someone would be angry. But I think that even reading it more recently, the, the change is so abrupt the the festive atmosphere, the whole town growl, gathering at the square the boys laughing around the girls in groups twittering. And then all of a sudden to yeah. just a, uh, you know, murderer. Yeah. Is, is, it's, it's rather abrupt. So I, I think that confusing in the sense that what led these people to commit this act. And I, I think that, you know, if you read it, having read it multiple times and going back through a second time, is where you sort of start to unpack that. And I, I read it, I think, as a part of a, a course in school, whether it's high school or college. So I was probably being very analytical at the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. You knew there were going to be questions at the end that you had to answer. Right. And just, just really understanding why is, this, why is this assigned? Why are these 
what is important about this and why, you know, why these people are doing what they did. Yeah. So the anger, I mean, it was interesting because the story was published in The New Yorker in June of 1948, and they were flooded with hate mail and canceled mm-hmm. subscriptions. Even recently, they said that's probably the most controversial story we've ever run, which is really interesting that they, uh, you know, they they run so much nonfiction to think that uh, a story that they ran, a, a work of fiction caused that kind of outpouring mm-hmm. of, of vitriol is very interesting. I think the anger, I think there are two types of anger that came. Mm-hmm. One type, I think, is people who say, this story ruined my evening. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I hated the ending because it was a horror story, but it didn't lead me to expect that. The beginning of mm-hmm. it was everything was bucolic. You think people are doing their civic duty. Uh, it is sort of festive, but you almost admire the crowd, the way they're all working together and they're upholding these traditions. And it it's portrayed as almost like a, a beautiful piece of small town Americana. And mm-hmm. then for people to feel like it was unfair, the surprise ending with the horrible twist at the end, it, it was unfair to me as a reader. I think that was one source of the anger. But mm-hmm. apparently another one was that People in small towns in New England felt like they were being singled out or mocked or uh, they didn't like the way it characterized them, maybe mm-hmm. because they they knew that there's a satirical aspect to this. Right. And they felt like there was an accusatory finger being pointed at them. Right. They internalized it and got defensive. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I... That's the problem, right? No one likes to look at themselves in the mirror. No yeah. community likes to right. look at themselves. Uh, if they didn't see themselves in the story, then maybe it would not have been a problem. So maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I felt like, I mean, I grew up in a small town. I felt like I recognized the town, but I didn't feel like it was making fun of small towns. I felt like it was exposing something about humanity uh, mm-hmm. that it wasn't saying, well, this is what life is like in a small town. And then they're actually, everything seems normal, but they're actually barbaric. I felt like it was more saying, this is what life is like in civilization, that right. we have these customs and norms, but then we're capable of these atrocities. Is that how you mm-hmm. read it as well? Yes, I, I did. And I, I looked at it Obviously, the people in the in the story we just heard, they are uh, they're not necessarily challenging rituals and traditions that they've grown up with. And so what I did was try to look at it in a way to see if I had similar blind spots Mm. to see if if there was, um, you know, something in my life. So, you know, I agree with you. It's something that. I don't necessarily see as representing small town America, but just <laughs> our, our human species yeah. overall. And it, I mean, it's written in 1948. Mm-hmm. I would have expected the readers to draw the connection, and especially at that point in history, and to say, oh, this is about the Holocaust, or this is about mm-hmm. Nazi Germany. This is about what happens when you normalize the inhumane Right. You legalize it and you make it part of the fabric of society and everybody feels like they're 
doing what's expected of them and they're being loyal and they're being patient and they're doing mm-hmm. all of these virtues that we normally praise, but it's in the service of this unspeakable horror. Right. I think I think that goes to one of my points earlier. These people see themselves reflected in this story. They they see themselves probably doing the people who were angry doing something similar and and automatically they're looking at themselves instead of outward. Like in like you said, it's in forty eight. Immediately you think, Yeah, this is how the Germans were able to do those horrible things but then they're like, Oh, what is it? horrible that we're doing i mean women the women's liberation movement hadn't happened there yeah. hadn't been the civil rights movement yeah and, well that and i mean yeah i don't know if new england would have felt singled out but if you had set this story in the south i'm sure yeah. that they would have felt like oh you're talking about lynchings right well i think i think the the uh, elephant in the room is that people in new england probably saw it as a problem too yeah. in their community. Yeah. Not maybe as extreme as what was going on in the South, but I think they they saw some things that probably could be could have been done a whole lot differently. And 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 to be quite candid, I see things that parallels today where things that we do, I do personally as a society and within my own culture that ah, you know perhaps things should be a little bit different. Well, Um, one of of the things that's interesting, though, comparing this with the Holocaust, with lynchings, with other kinds of groups um, that you could imagine, the way we treat uh, the poor, the way we treat the disabled, homosexuals, like basically there are all these things. I'm sure there were tons of prejudice. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. the prejudices of the people in New England, you're right, it's probably feeling like that's being exposed or or singled out in some way is probably what led to a lot of the anger. But what's interesting is that the story almost goes out of its way to take that element out of it. Mm -hmm. This is not a mob Mm -hmm. who has identified some kind of weakness or some kind of other. This is... Mm -hmm a mob that is basically going along with the idea that one of themselves has to be stoned. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. nothing different about the people. In fact, it's just random. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? I guess when I think about it from that view, I immediately think about what it takes for individuals who recognize a problem Mm. And society at large, but they're really comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> they they are not directly impacted by the problem. Right. And so while they probably all on an individual level would like to see things done differently, mm-hmm. to, to be that squeaky wheel is not easy. So throughout the story, I mean, it's a very short, compact story, but there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. And you can see discomfort with the tradition. You can see that it's not necessarily something that is palatable, but once it's determined that they're not picked or they're not chosen to suffer the consequences, they're quick to just turn around and and go about their lives and to put it off until the next year. So I, I, I think that you're right. Like it's not sort of some other, but there's always a chance that 
they won't have to suffer the consequences. And so some of the things that we as a society and as a culture use to make people others, they're all constructs, social constructs. So it's not real. And in this story, the, I don't want to say the winner of the lottery, like it's all just, it's all fake. They all put it up. So it's all, it's like, I think it's a similar shell game. Right. And so I, I think that it works still and, and it, it just shows that you need a spark to, to make a big change. Yeah. And I maybe guess. maybe the point is, look what humans are willing to do even when they haven't identified an other and then right. look at uh, how easy it is for them to slide into this conformity where they're treating mm-hmm. it as if everything is normal and everything is fine. And in fact, they're just being good, patriotic citizens of this town. And mm-hmm. yet they're willing to do all of this, even though, you know, I mean, they give, <laughs> there's a line toward the end where they they give little Davy Hutchinson a few pebbles right. that he's going to be using mm-hmm. as, as part of the stoning. The horrifying part of it is to think when there is an other people will just be willing to go along with this. There'll be no way to stop it. Right. Right. Yeah. But when, when they sort of manufacture this other, they're still willing to go along with it, even though I think, I mean, the way I read it, I don't know what you think, but I think a lot of people don't like it. There's talk about what other towns are doing and who might be willing to give it up. And and there's sort of no acknowledgement of what, or no remembrance of why they even, you know, do this. So I, I have to believe that it's just individuals within that community don't like it, but because they feel the pressure from tradition, from mm-hmm. no alternative voice out there within their community to, to do a change, to do anything different, they just sort of acquiesce. Other than this is the tradition, it's the way it's always done, and it's important for us to continue traditions, is there any way to defend the lottery? I mean, does it, ha- does it have any redeeming qualities? Would, could you say that people could be fooled into thinking that it was good other than just that it was a longstanding tradition? No, but I guess the one thing that sort of stands out to me with in the lottery is the and 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 this is this would be something maybe I'll ask you Jack but the way women are they're on the on the one hand it's still a patriarchal society the men they draw for the women right yes yes and even and as soon as the younger teenage boy is old enough then he'll be able to draw for his for his mother or his family so on on one hand it is clearly patriarchal society but then like and the implementation of, I don't even know how to describe it, the ritual, like women are on the same level as men, they're treated the same. And so I, I look at what happens when a woman, Miss uh, Mrs. Hutchinson, for example, is taken from her family, like, the, is the husband then going to become sort of fill that role, fill that void? Like, will he then be doing the dishes or will that, like, how do, how do those tasks sort of, um, mm. you know, how, <laughs> how are they handled? Because right. I mean, on the one hand, like the men have a role, the men are all gathering now, but now if you, if you take away this mother, this backbone of society, 
who fills that role? What if there is not a, because naturally you would think that it would be a teenage daughter, right? But what if, and that's probably going to happen in that family, but like if there is not that, that woman there, that daughter there to fill that void, like, I, so I, so no, there's nothing that sort of makes it palatable. No, I don't see a redeeming quality yeah. to it, but, but the one thing that, interests me about it is that because women are are viewed at a certain way like if you take away that i mean for like our our society the united states at least we didn't pass an era an equal rights amendment for a reason and so i just it just that sort of puzzles me and that's that's the one thing in this story that that i haven't been able to come up with an answer to well that yeah it's kind of like the argument, you know, I see this with authors sometimes where people will say, uh, I hate the treatment of women in your books. And they'll say, but have you read my books? The men are all swine, too. And <laughs> it's this idea of it, as long as it's egalitarian, mm-hmm. that that's a positive aspect of it. But it kind of begs the question, well, why do the men have to why do the men and the women have to be horrible? You know, like, like, why not have yeah. positive redeeming characters? And that's kind of what I was getting at with this question is there may be features of the lottery that are carried out. I'm glad that they're not saying, let's find the oldest and weakest person and stone him. Right. But on the other hand, you could almost argue that something like that, they could be in this sort of misguided, confused way saying, well, we have a shortage of food and it's important for us Mm -hmm. to trim the herd. Mm -hmm. And maybe I guess you could invent different facts and say that, you know, this is a way of reminding people of the fragility of life or something that that serves this kind of function or that everyone has a murderous impulse and this allows them to discharge it in a way that's fair. But I, I really don't think any of that is what Shirley Jackson is going for here. I really think she's kind of just saying people are capable of such atrocities that they would even go ahead and turn a lottery, a random thing into a sacred event mm-hmm. and dress it up and say, well, this is just how it's always been and how it always must be. Mm-hmm. And then do this unspeakable thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I just, I think that that is correct. I just, the one thing I keep going back to, and maybe this wasn't a part of what, Jackson was trying to do was that maybe she was just a commentary on revolution. <laughs> yeah. What it, what it takes to, to change something that's, that's going on that's horrible. Well, apartheid South Africa banned the story. And I think I can mm-hmm. see that, right? I think I can see why mm-hmm. they did it. I think one of their main arguments was, uh, well, this is how it's always been. This is the natural order of things. Uh, no need to change. And this sort of exposes the the flaws in that thinking. But I was surprised to learn that it was banned in American schools as late as the 1990s. Why do you think it was banned in schools? Well, I think probably, and this is post-hoc rationalization, which I had no, really, I didn't sort of reach reach far to do it. But the, the, our school system, I don't know if it, if it was, designed to develop critical thought and people who think critically about what's going around them, right? Mm. In the mm-hmm. you wanted a baseline of education and a 
some indoctrinization. I think it was, for example, me personally, I don't think I was really thought to think very critically about what was going around me until I was in college, right? Mm-hmm. At, at the lower secondary levels, it was all about tra- ingesting what they were putting in front of me and being able to, to regurgitate <laughs> my own words. And so I could see that being a reason why, it, and also paternalistic, right? It's so shocking. Like, do you yeah. really want our children to read about how humans can be, you know? If, yeah. yeah. So, or maybe maybe there was some worries that it, there'd be sort of copycat clubs or something. And, let, you know, who here is brave enough to, to join a lottery? Let's go out in the woods and yeah. and we'll draw straws and then we'll stone somebody to death. And, you know, maybe there was some fear of that. But I think you're probably right. It was probably viewed as too shocking and horrible and yeah. and uh, just not appropriate for young minds. And and maybe I hadn't really thought of the idea of schools being also operating on principles of conformity, at least mm-hmm. to get kids through sort of those teenage years until they get to college. And maybe there was something there as well. And just thinking about it, like, you know, we live in a in a society similar to first, you know, we democratic institutions, right? But but you know, really a lot of the success of the people in our society who are sort of at the top of the food chain, they depend on worker bees. And mm. and you got you gotta have people who are willing to be those worker bees and not necessarily demand equal treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Or or shake things or, up or to right. to challenge traditions and the natural order of things as it's viewed in conventional wisdom. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So. Do you think, I mean, where does that leave us today? Do you think we're, are we in a world of conformity? I mean, we certainly see what happens to protesters and mm-hmm. every kind of protest seems like it's immediately followed by uh, a backlash. Mm-hmm. You can see what happens to people when they try to shake things up or challenge traditions and what seems to be the natural order of things. Do you think the story is still relevant? If Shirley Jackson were writing today, would you expect to see some changes in the story that would better reflect our times? This is a very, very, very interesting question. There's there are so many layers to this. Mm-hmm. I will say, first of all, that it is relevant today However, there would have to, I think there would have to be significant changes to the story Mm. because you read it and it's shocking. However, you know what? Sandy Hook, Mm. uh, Parkland, the children in our society today are not as innocent as I was back then. Mm. When I was a child, we had drills for tornadoes. (laughs) We'd go into the hallway and put our head down. We did not have lockdown drills Mm. and children today have lockdown drills. My son is six years old and he has a lockdown drill. So I think that, you know, eventually when he reads a story like this, he might live in a world where he knows something tragic happened to someone who was his age. And I, I think this would probably sadly not be as shocking to him as it was to me. It might be more antiquated and he probably couldn't relate even to the small new england town so yeah 
So I think that that's an important point. It's a sad point, but but I do think that it's still relevant today too, because you know we do live in a society where our police force, who who is you know you think is supposed to serve and protect, they're kind of militarized and they they tamp down anything that almost is out of line and is 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 non-conforming. So I mean, it's a scary world. So that's on a on a macro level. Yeah, but I. I want to bring up something, Jack, that uh, uh, may uh, make you uncomfortable. Okay. Being that you're you're a man and all, and I don't want to get too personal, but uh, <laughs> I'm <you> ready. <laughs> your brace, brace yourself. Okay. <laughs> Circumcision out there. Like, why do we do that? <laughs> Why are little boys being mutilated when they are unable to make the decision for themselves? Mm. Like I, there is, I have not been told any reason based in facts, medical science, uh, that doesn't sort of stem back to a religious belief or cutting of a person. Yeah. down there in a very private place. So uh, it's not stoning, but we as a society uh, do that. And, and, and then just, just to add to it, right now we look at third world countries as having uh, a crisis of female genital mutilation. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we think it's horrible that something should be stopped but it's a tradition and and i say third world maybe not i mean it's a, 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 in places where people women don't have rights and they want to subject a, you know women to keep them in a certain role yeah so so not speaking to that which i think is horrible terrible i would be interested in in understanding why that is different from male circumcision. Well, it's interesting. And it's interesting that we treat those two things differently. And I think you're right. This goes straight to Shirley Jackson and her point. I think we condemn female genital mutilation because I think there's a stronger condemnation of that because they're looking at the motive of it and saying, well, if this is done for sexual reasons down the road, this is done to impact the woman's sexuality, then Mm -hmm. we recognize it as an atrocity and like a crime against women, basically. When it's male circumcision and it's accepted, there's no negative motive ascribed to it. It's not saying... This will mark them. They'll be inferior citizens in the future, or this will somehow destroy their quality of life in some certain way when they're adults. It's basically, well, this is what we do. It was good enough for one generation, so it'll be good enough for the next generation. It'll let kids blend in and and not feel weird. It's how it's done. It's just how Mm -hmm. it's always been done, or it's just part of the tradition. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think that's where Shirley Jackson kind of comes in to say, challenge some of these traditions. 
if it's just because this is the way it's always been done, examine that as vigorously as you would examine something that's for that we have a different set of motives for. Yeah. But here's what I was thinking about the way that we would look at a story like this today. So here's a, mm-hmm. let me roll out this theory and see what you think. So one of the things about this, it feels very 20th century to me, very Cold War, and this period coming out of World War II and running through the Cold War where all of the episodes of the Twilight Zone are kind of like this, like shock mm-hmm. people into recognizing what it is that humans are capable of, even in these bucolic small towns or even in an unassuming, pleasant little village that people are capable of doing really inhumane things. And we saw it in Germany. I'm I'm speaking now on behalf of someone like Rod Serling. You know, we saw it in Germany. Mm -hmm. We see it now in the way that we're willing to blithely you know, nuclear stockpile and and talk about things like destroying the world. And we're, we're capable of these things if we're not careful. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like whether it's the guns in our country or climate change around the world, I kind of feel like the key issue today is inaction. That it's mm-hmm. not that we would, you know, we could be easily led to this position of, well, let's go out and and stone somebody, and that being a stand-in for whether it's the Holocaust or or nuclear war or something. But it's almost like the way I think I would try to change the story today is what happens when traditions lead people to doing nothing, even when Mm -hmm. they know that there is a potential disaster around the corner. Mm -hmm. So rather than a a civic ceremony where people are drawing lots and then going out and singling someone out for death, I think I would try to reorganize the story so that it would be about people who just couldn't be bothered to move and do something, even though there was a looming disaster, you know, a flood or something that was on its way or a, a, Mm -hmm. a, a meteor that was about to crash into Earth if people didn't send up a rocket to take care of it. And instead, people just talking themselves out of it and basically saying, um, we can't do anything about it anyway, so let's live for the moment. Very fair. Yeah, no, I I think that a few tweaks and it could sort of highlight that issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so last question for you. Uh Does this deserve its place in the pantheon of short stories? Would would you say that it's up there with the yellow wallpaper and other classics of the genre? I would have to say yes for reasons aside from just, you know, the great writing and a great story. And because, again, yellow wallpaper, it was, to me, it could have, this was just excellent, excellent writing. And I think this story is a type of writing, but I think it's important because of what it leads to in terms of discussion, mm-hmm. of political thought and self-reflection. Yeah. I had the same idea. I thought, you know, there are some stories I could read a hundred times, and mm-hmm. this story is not one of them. Right. You kind of need to read it once or twice, but it does give you a lot of things to think about. I like thinking about the story more than I like actually reading the story. No, I, I I am with you there. So it's I think it's a step below <laughs> mm-hmm. 
the last book we talked about, but I think it's it's not going to disappear anytime soon. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's leave things there. Evie, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jack. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? What an amazing story. My thanks to the always fascinating Evie Lee for joining us today to unpack it all. And of course, to Shirley Jackson, whose twisted imagination turned a nice, sunshiny day into something that resounds darkly in all of us. There's an abyss deep within, a kind of hollowness to our soul. She gets at that. For me, it's giving the... It's, it's when they gave that little boy, the son, a handful of rocks to throw at his mother. That seems like just the kind of thing I cannot believe. And yet, somehow, I know that we are capable of that. I know that's exactly what would happen. Horrible. We'll be back next week with a fun one. So sign up now for the History of Literature podcast. Tell all your friends and try to avoid those small town rituals in the meantime. You never know when you'll be the one left holding the black spot. And wouldn't that be a shame? Think of all the literature you would miss and all the wonderful History of Literature podcast episodes. Tragedy squared. Right there in the square. Who writes this stuff? Our intern. <laughs> Can we fire the intern or is he one of those criers? Okay. I guess I don't have the heart. We'll let him live. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.